MCDM released a new RPG safety toolkit. We're going to take a look at the Kickstarter for The Gloaming Wild, a 5e survival horror Kickstarter. I'm going to share my experiences running my annual Ravenloft game this year. I, I ran the game yesterday. In particular, what it was like using level up 5e's vampire. And we're going to go through more questions from the October Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A. All today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want access to the City of Arches sourcebook, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, access to our dedicated Discord channel, access to the monthly Q&A, and a whole bunch more, you can become a patron of Sly Flourish by clicking on the link in the show notes below on becoming a Patron. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So there are now a number of groups that have put out RPG safety toolkits for free. So one of the ones I liked was the one by Tomer Garantz that talks about a bunch of different safety tools. But there are now a number of different free resources for safety tools for role-playing games. Monty Cook Games has one called Consent in Gaming that's also really good. And it looks as though MCDM decided they want to put out one as well. I have a safety tool sheet that's in the Lazy DMs Companion, for example, that has the ones that I've, I've found to be particularly good. And it's really good. You can download for free there's a link down to their patreon post where they talk about it but you do not have to subscribe to their patreon in order to get access to it it's got a four-page guide and then a checklist that you can use and it covers all of the ones that you hear about in many different ones it talks about the importance of a session zero it, it talks about lines and veils it talks about describing how do you talk to your, your your players about safety safety tools x cards stars and wishes lots of different good stuff here so very really really excellent Really excellent guide. Again, available for free. You can you can you can pick that up in the show notes below. It also includes the safe, tabletop safety checklist. Monty Cook Games is consenting gaming. Also has this. I'm not a crazy fan of the checklists. I, I offered some uh, like in the Lazy DM Companion version. I offered a set of like these are potential topics you might might want to think about. But all of these different things can be you know, all of these all of the things that we either are perfectly fine with being in our RPG or things that we do not want to cover in our RPG are pretty unique. Trying to cover it all in a single checklist is really I don't I don't think you're going to be successful. I think there's things that you're going to miss. And I think that there's going to be a lot of stuff on there that people are going to like scratch their heads and be like, why is that a problem? So it's really better to just have open communication with your players. Describe that they can bring up anything to you. Tell them what your own lines and veils are. One of the things I do is I make it very clear what I don't want in a game as a DM. And that helps them feel comfortable about things they don't want to have in a game. I, I, I kind of like that idea better than the checklist, but too much is better than too little. A really excellent guide. You can find a link to the MCDM Tabletop Safety Toolkit in the show notes below. Again, perfectly free to pick up. Check it out. This past week, I became aware of a Kickstarter for, called The Gloaming Wild, a 5e survival horror Kickstarter that's going on right now. And it is a great big book. It's actually, I think, the PDF you, or the digital version, you get access to a few different books. The Gloaming Wild PDF, the Gloaming Wild Survivor's Guide PDF. Looks like it's got a heavy focus on character options for it. But what really caught my eye... When I, when I was looking at this, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of neat. 30 subclass options, 100 new spells and feats, new features for all classes. And again, we can get back to my big complaint about 1D&D and like, are they breaking these things? Are we buying a bunch of products now? They're going to be broken in two years if we decide to go to the next version of D&D. Wizards of the Coast, I really hope you don't break all these awesome products that people are putting out, including you. But what I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, this is, this is cool stuff. But what really grabbed my eye is their free preview. They have a free preview. It's a you know, free, free preview. Digital starter set gives you all you need to start a campaign in the Wild. Oh, okay. That's cool. You expect a 10, 10, 12 page preview. And at first I was like, okay, I'm going to go get this. And I clicked it and it's like, oh, you got to sign up with an email address. I'm like, man, don't make me sign up for an email address 
for a free preview that you're giving for a Kickstarter. I mean, that was my reaction. I've given this reaction before. I gave it to 2C Gaming on theirs. Talked to Ryan Service at 2C Gaming about it specifically. And I was like, all right, well, I'll go and I'll give you my email address. Everybody's got my email address anyway. I'll give you my email address. But holy cow, what you get <laughs> when you give your email address is totally worth you giving your email address. Because it isn't just a small free preview. It is a whole ton of different stuff. So you get the a player preview guide that's 27 pages of material showing you different new features that you can have for your characters here you get the a, an entire adventure an adventure ready to run a 47 page adventure ready to run called the wolf's bride ready to download right for your halloween game you're running a halloween game later today this if you happen to be on twitch running it if you're running a horror game sometime this week here is a whole adventure you can run Really cool looking book shows again. This is the importance of a preview of something like this as it shows off the quality of the material you're going to get with the main with the main book. But a really interesting way, new way to play the very, very kind of, you know, descriptions about how to run it. Survival campaigns. Again, still fifth edition based. Really neat artwork. Excellent design. Really like the design. And it comes with pre-generated characters, third level pre-generated characters ready to play that have some of the new features that they are including in the Kickstarter. So this isn't just a free preview to give you an idea of what the layout looks like or what the text looks like or, or whether or not the editing is good and high quality or anything like that. This is a playable pack. This is probably a $10, at least $10. I could see 15 bucks just for the material you get in here for this adventure with all the pre-gens, with a player guide, with a, with a DM guide for running the adventure, 50 page adventure, a lot of material in here a lot of stuff is that worth giving an email address i certainly think so so i i after getting what i got i wasn't upset about having to put an email address in for it the kickstarter itself looks really neat and as as i do i do not preview anything on this show that i do not back there's two two things one is i do not receive any compensation for any of the spotlights that i do for kickstarter and i back all of the kickstarters that i preview on here so my own money is is back there with here and i will say that preview is amazing. And the preview is what got me to back it because the pledge levels are pretty high. The idea of 35 bucks for a couple of PDFs, that's pretty high. Like I'm, you know, I'm a little price sensitive, probably a little cheap. I'm an old dude. I'm cheap. I'm not used to the inflation yet. So when I see $35 for a PDF, it's like, ah, that's a lot, you know, because a lot of these are experimental to me. A lot of these are like, well, I'll pick it up, but I don't know if I'm going to run it. And I don't know if I'm going to use it. You know, so I'm, I'm, I have sort of impulse buys. And I think my impulse buy level is really at 20 bucks these days. Like I'll back almost anything. And like $20, if it's a reasonable size thing, I'll back that. 10 bucks, sure. 35 that's pretty high but also interesting is the the physical version that includes the pdfs and everything is 55 i always i'm 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 trying to understand the economics of it because the idea that you get the physical book for 20 dollars more but boy i can tell you as a producer who makes books and ships books it is so much harder to manage physical distribution and the work you have to do for physical distribution warehousing costs and printing costs and shipping costs to get them to the warehouse so that they can be delivered all of that stuff is the logistics of that is so hard. It's always interesting when the physical version is only slightly more than the digital version because the digital version is way easier to deliver. So it's it's pretty cool. But check it out. You can take. I would. I would. I definitely recommend giving. Go ahead and give them your email address and get the free preview of this because that'll show you the stuff. And if you like it, if you look at it and you read it and you maybe you run that adventure and you see the stuff they're doing at the pregens and you dig it, then you might say, yeah, it's definitely worth the thirty five bucks to pick up the rest of this because that 
preview on its own. Maybe that's why it's $35 is because, you know, 15 bucks of that 35 you already got with that, with that free preview. So that is the Gloaming Wild 5e Survival Horror. I would definitely check it out. I backed the PDF version. They are, still have 27 days to go on their Kickstarter. So as of this recording, probably 25 or days by the time the show comes out. So uh, go ahead, take a look. The link for this Kickstarter is in the show notes below. Every year I try to run a Castle Ravenloft Halloween adventure. I try to hit players that I haven't played with in some time. I've moved it to online because it is so much easier to run Castle Ravenloft online. If you want to see a couple of videos where I talk about how I prepare my annual Ravenloft game and what it's like to set up all of the maps for Ravenloft in Albert Rodeo, my, my tabletop of choice, I used it last night. There are two links in the videos below that talk about how I set this up, how I set up my Ravenloft game, and how I set up the maps to run it digitally. Those are all in the show notes below. So I would definitely check that out. They include like an article I wrote about it that I actually used this time. So I'm not going to talk about how the, the, the all, how I did the game, but I will talk about what I did in my game. It was really fun. So in this game, I, I like to, one thing I like to do in the game is I like to shake up who does the fortune of Ravenloft, who is the villain of Ravenloft, and who is the victim of Ravenloft. I like to change these up. I don't always, it's not always Strahd every time. Sometimes it's other people. And in this case, the villain and the victim were kind of interchangeable. It was Ismark and Irina Kolyana themselves. Ismark and Irina, the two, the brother and sister of Barovia. And the re and, and, and I, I just rolled some dice and those were the two that came up. I have a roll of like who is doing what. And I was like, it is really cool to with the idea that Ismark and Irina are now both vampires. And the idea was that the that that adventurers had managed to kill Strahd. They managed to free Irina from Strahd. But during the process, Irina was mortally wounded and dying. And Ismark, unwilling to let her sister die, gave her the blood of Strahd and made her a vampire. But also unwilling to let her do it alone, he drank the blood himself, and both of them became vampires. And he had entombed Irina. He knew that she was turning into this thing. So he kept her alive. He couldn't stand the fact that she's dead, but he also like entombed her somewhere. And he then ran Castle Ravenloft. And he assumed that anybody that comes to Ravenloft is attempting to destroy her and probably destroy him but destroy her is what he cares about and he's like i'm gonna kill you because of the fortunes they knew where the sun sword was they knew i switched the icon of ravenloft out for the other item for the holy symbol because the holy symbol is really terrible the fortune teller in this circumstance was exanthier the lich so instead of them driving up on a carriage they were actually in the amber temple and he had drawn five sarcophagi five amber sarcophagi out of his tombs and opened them and inside of each sarcophagi were one of the characters so they didn't know where they came from they had only fuzzy memories of of their past lives and he woke them up and said you are responsible for ending the darkness that now exists inside castle ravenloft he described ismark and irena and said you guys are responsible and then he teleported them to the front of castle ravenloft and off they went they met with ismark ismark replaced strad inside of the dining hall he explained to them that like i know you're more of the mercenaries that exanthera is sent to try to kill us you're just going to die like they do but I'm not, I'm not a total evil bastard. I will give you three hours of your miserable lives before I'm going to come for you. And that's three real life hours. So that way there's this limit on how much time they have to explore the castle to try to find the items of Ravenloft before they face Ismark. It's not a great magic item for, you know, it just like ruins
wins the vampire battles, but the icon isn't so bad because it gives that protection from good. They had they had three hours to find the sword, to find the icon, and to find the book. The book is required. Destroying the book is the equivalent to killing the vampires in their coffins. So if you can get to the book, you don't have to get to their coffins. But you also know where they are because the fourth one is where they are. In this case, we had five characters. They they got that mission. They started traveling. They first went up high into Castle Ravenloft, at which point they got a hold of the icon of Ravenloft. They fought some vampire spawn. They fought some whites they fought some crawling claws but most of it was exploring it and trying to find their way and it's interesting because i've had some of these players my wife is in every one of these and she's now played this like nine or ten times and it's still hard to figure out exactly where you are and she's like i'm pretty sure i know where this goes i'm pretty not i, I think i know about the secret so she's starting to learn more and more about <laughs> like figuring out where ravenloft is but you're going in different directions every time so it's really it's really tricky and there's like five stairwells it's really crazy so they, they made their way up got the icon of ravenloft and said now let's go down to the basement and they went down to the basement they were looking around for the book i think because they knew if they could get the book and they ended up finding where the villain was. And in this case, the villain was Irina. And they found that Irina was, was that Ismark. And I made this up at the last minute that Ismark had put Irina in the coffin of Strahd's father. And he resided, he resided in the coffin of Strahd's mother. And they got down there and they saw that there is this lawful, good, holy light that separates those coffins off. And that's why she's sealed away. So he actually, he sleeps in a different coffin. He didn't sleep in there. And then he confronted them. And for this, I used the level up 5e vampire. So I wanted to try a different vampire stat block. I went to level up 5e. You can actually get this on the, there's a link in the show notes below, but A5e tools, A5e.tools is their kind of D&D Beyond-ish interface to the level up 5e monsters and you can see the vampire stat block there and it's a lower challenge rating but i had them fighting two vampires i had them fighting arena and ismark at the same time they were level six so well under leveled for this but Irina was trapped so she really couldn't do anything except charm and one thing i will tell you about the level up 5e vampires they charm like crazy now the benefit of their charm is that you can break the charm by taking any damage so the characters can do damage to themselves in order to break the charm that's a difference between the vampire the vampire and the monster manual can only have their charm broken if the if the enemies if if the vampire and its allies attack the character if they take damage from any other source the charm's not broken and the charm does not have a save at the end of turn so that the, the charm of the vampire in, in monster manual is really not not great it's not great for fun i'll tell you they have legendary resistance they get older when they use it they have mystery recovery all this stuff regular stats are pretty close to what the normal stats are ac and, and hit points and everything like that their uh, actions are they can grab and the nice thing about their grab is when they grab you they, they they grapple and restrain you and they do damage which is good and the damage is pretty high 14 bludgeoning and four necrotic i probably would have shifted it over and done nine necrotic you know, less less bludgeoning and more necrotic because they're vampires they're not they're not just hitting you hard they're, it's the draining that i think is really important so they could grab you but it, it's a minor point 14 bludgeoning for necrotic damage and they only get the one action around but they the bonus action is a bite they can do it to someone they've grappled or restrained and that one is 10 piercing plus 21 necrotic and then the 21 necrotic reduces the hit point maximum of the character that's a big deal and boy that was what really put the characters on edge now i didn't get a chance to use either the hissing scuttle or the warding charm these are two reactions that they can use to either move without provoking if they take radiant damage really cool you know really cool skirmisher thing warding charm is if they're about to get attacked by somebody with a melee attack they can charm that person immediately 
the trick with that is that there's so many charms. So they can they can charm as an action if they want to. Irina was doing this, for example. They can charm as a reaction with warding charm if they're attacked in melee. Uh, and they can charm as a legendary action. So they could ter- they can technically do three charms per turn. Now, granted, you're generally fighting a vampire one-on-one and I was using two. It was actually not bad using two. And the charm was getting old. I wish I had put in my psychic break. That They can break charm if they're willing to take psychic damage equal to 1d8 per every two character levels. So if there's level six, they would take 3d8 psychic damage to break the charm at the beginning of their turn, which is great because then they can kind of choose to take damage, break out of the charm and stuff like that. I forgot to do that and that would have been really great. But generally speaking, boy, they were the characters were really on the edge. They were pushed hard by these two vampires. Irina really couldn't hit anybody and do any physical damage, but she could charm people and particularly non-lawful good people and have them run into the wall to get to her and take a bunch of damage from the wall, which I did as 3d8 radiant damage. So they were taking a bunch of radiant damage by running into the wall. It worked out really well. I liked it. I liked the design of this very much. I had little nitpicky things, but I think of the published vampires I've seen, I think this is my favorite vampire. I think that this vampire definitely works better than the vampire that's in the monster manual. So if you're looking to run a cool vampire, check out check out this vampire from Level Up 5e. It is, it is really, really good. And I had a really good time running my Ravenloft game once again, and I look forward to running it next year as well so again you want to learn more about running ravenloft as a single session halloween based game two links there's three links three different links in the show notes below will show you how to do so because it's it's really a lot of fun every month on the sly flourish patreon i post a thread anybody that's a member of the sly flourish patreon can ask a DD related question i answer all of the questions in that thread and then some of them i take and bring here to this show other ones i will turn into articles on slyflourish.com or as videos that i show up on the sly flourish youtube video the youtube channel sam moore says I just finished running Frostmaiden after about one and a half years. The final battle was suitably epic, taking over four hours, but was mostly one big bad enemy with multiple phases. Though it was fun, it kind of dragged out. What are your thoughts on running epic battles at key moments in the campaign without making them drag on or take forever? I have two suggestions for this. One is the Dials of Monster difficulty. You can find a link in the show notes below. You have the ability to increase the amount of damage they do to decrease the amount of hit points they have to change the theme of the battle so that the pacing stays fun that if it drags on and it's really time for the battle to end you can just turn those hit points dial, dial down and they can finish them you can decide that which when the final blow is going to occur you can you can kind of decide when the pacing is right that's way better than letting a battle drag on and be boring don't stick to the hit points that are listed on the page because it's because it's right or boring there's an average that those hit points on the page are an average and you get to choose what the range of that average is same with damage if you want to add and increase the threat a little bit add a little bit more damage and now things seem more dangerous if you get to a certain point maybe the character maybe the, the villains set themselves on fire and now they do a lot more fire damage but they're taking a lot more damage in return so options like that the other one is don't don't forget that a battle can also be a vehicle for secrets and clues it can show you interesting things that the characters didn't know it's a time to interact with npcs particularly the villains so it's the, the the a big cinematic battle is not just combat the cinematic battle is also an opportunity to learn things it's an opportunity for the situation to change change the environment parts of it break away again you want to see a good example of like a battle that's that works this way take a look at the the final battle of the critical role season one where they fight vecna because that one is crazy and everything happens there and the emotional draw of that is huge so it is a really interesting thing but yeah think about a you have dials to change the combat stuff to make it really exciting and interesting and also you have opportunities to drop in new lore new secrets and clues new things that they learn new interactions with other characters look at the battle as a stage for the whole game not just for the combat that's occurring in the game 
Brooks says, would you recommend any TTRPGs other than D&D 5e? Do you feel like running campaigns in different system, Blades in the Dark Numenera, adds any value to the 5e games you usually run, or do you mostly run them because your players are interested in those systems? I absolutely, I'm going to answer these in reverse order, I guess. I absolutely think it is valuable to 5e to play other systems. I think Teo Sabadia has often talked about how valuable it is to run games for players that aren't just your same five players at your table. And I agree with that too. You want to learn. There's a lot of things you can learn by exposing yourself to different parts of this hobby. That includes running other systems, playing in other systems, playing in groups that aren't your own, playing instead of running, running games for people that aren't yours, running in conventions, running in in time circumstances, running different game worlds. The the wider exposure you have to this hobby, the the, the more you're going to be able to draw on these experiences and try out new ideas. Play with other DMs. Play with good DMs. Play with bad. Sometimes you don't have a choice and you end up playing with a bad DM. You can learn from a lot of bad DM is a little extreme, but DMs that aren't your style, things you don't like. The games I've played in that I really didn't like, I learned the most from. And the games that I loved, I played in a campaign recently and I loved it. Did I learn a lot? Not really, because I was just enjoying the game. So my friend Chris's game that I played in, fantastic game, loved it. I don't think there was anything where I look back and go, oh yeah, that's really a lesson I should pick up and and do differently. No, I was just into the game. I loved my character, loved what was going on. But boy, I've been in other games where because of what was going on in the game, I was completely broken out of the game and I'm like, oh boy, we're taking some notes here. These are, I was able to write like 22 DM tips from things that happen in the game. Yes, you can learn a lot. Do I recommend other systems? Absolutely. Some systems I would recommend that you try. Fate. I love Fate. Uh, Fate Condensed is a really good system. You can learn a lot from that. Definitely love the Cypher system in Numenera. I think running shorter campaigns in Numenera is really good. Blades in the Dark. I ran it. It was hard for me to run. I would love to play in it. And I think if you were into that, you can definitely run it. But any of the Powered by the Apocalypse games, I think are really good. And you can learn a lot from playing the Powered by the Apocalypse games. I love 13th Age. I love Shadow of the Demon Lord. My players often talk. I have players that I've played with who often talk about having played Shadow of the Demon Lord and 13th Age and how much they love those systems. They really enjoyed them. So yes, try out other systems, try out other groups, try playing, try running games in conventions and game shops. I just ran recently ran a game in a game shop. It was really, really fun. So yeah, the more you get exposed to that, the better a DMA will be, I think. Dr. Fugue said, Dr. Fugue, Dr. Fugue says, started a new campaign. I'm sticking to the lazy GM prep cool. It has been working great and I spend much more manageable time prepping. This does leave more gaps to be decided at the table. So I was wondering, do you have any good method or oracle that serves you well to come up with stuff on the fly at the table? It's a pretty general question. And the, it, it, it depends on what gaps exist. I definitely have brought up the metaphor of the of the eight steps of return being like little dishes of food that you're going to cook right at the table, like a hibachi grill, that instead of like cooking it all in the back and then bringing up a fully prepared meal, you are instead bringing your little dish of onions, your little dish of proteins and meats, your little dish of sauces, and you are deciding, you are kind of cooking it there at the table. Now, the difference is they're still pretty cooking the same kind of thing, where in your case, you don't know what you're going to bring. So I try to think about when, when you, if you go to the table and you find that there are gaps there are things you don't have that you wish you had maybe that's something to add to your list if you decide like you know what i i, I want to run battles but i really want to run more interesting environmental effects during combat and that's not one of the steps where do i put that well you can add that to your fantastic locations you can add that to your monster list you can decide like I want to add some of this stuff. I'm always a big fan of random generators but i have a feeling that random generators tend to work better 
before the game during your prep than they do at the game itself but you can always use random generators an example is treasure if i don't really have treasure but they find some i'll hit a random treasure generator npcs of course a random list of names that is a really big one having like a random npc list is definitely is definitely something i am working on a new project for the sly flourish patreon that i'm hoping to release in the next week or two actual patrons right now could probably get access and it's on there but i haven't announced it yet which is a big pile of random generators with the hope and they're they're built because i want them they're built because i want to use them but they're also built maybe that you could use them right at your game table as well but really the question is what are the gaps that you have are they things that you should prepare because sometimes they might be there's a reason why like you look at the eight steps there are eight steps there there are things you want to fill out there because you can't i i can't improvise all that stuff right at the table i need i need something i've i've talked to dms who purely improvise the whole time i've talked to other ones who need to do one hour of prep for every hour of the game and you know i think there's room in between but it, you design your own style the lazy dungeon master talks about this right the, the, the book return of the lazy dungeon master talks about this you design the style that works for you so if you're finding there are things that you're having trouble with maybe that's something to add to the list the that italian guy says i'm currently running dungeons of drakenheim very cool and i think the faction play would benefit from borrowing a few elements from blades in the dark which concepts would you bring over and how would you implement them for 5e I'm not a big fan of the tying like mechanical things to to stuff like factions. I, I I like to take a story approach. So you you definitely could dive into Blades in the Dark, and you can I think you can get like a good free previews of it if you don't want to if you don't want to buy the whole thing. But I think it's pretty cheap to buy about like how to run factions, how to keep track of like which groups you're friends with, which groups you're enemies with. I don't really remember off the top of my head exactly how Blades does it, but there's probably, there's almost certainly elements that could help you track it. But in my feeling, I just let the story kind of run with it. I don't really need like a faction markers or little dials or little, little levers where the, how much a, you know how much faction you've gained oh you're a plus seven faction now with the 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 street marauders but you're minus three faction with the hooded you know the the the, the hooded blood cultists I, I don't really worry about that i try to like leave leave things evolve because these are complicated worlds and you can't just simplify them down to a dial like that instead you want to build them you know we have complicated brains able to simulate entire worlds let's use our complicated brains without able to simulate entire worlds to simulate that instead of trying to come up with like a single dimension measure for that sort of stuff so i think it's cool to pay attention to the factions i think it's good to spend time and be like what does this faction think of the characters right now you know do they like them do they not are they hunting them are they not and think about like get into the heads of your villains get into the heads of those factions and think about what they would think about instead of trying to put like a mechanical benefit on it i love clocks the, the idea of clocks i think that's one of the easiest things you can take from blades in the dark and drop in your DD game is this idea of clocks i have a video where i talk about bringing the clocks from blades in the dark and using them to me a clock is like a really good way of doing what many refer to as a skill challenge in a fifth edition game which is the idea that you might have something that requires more than one step to complete you can quickly improvise a clock and this is something you definitely improvise in the middle of your game it's a really great tool for that you can improvise a clock that says four successes are required before this thing goes on or one clock needs to be filled out before the other clock fills out or catastrophe occurs lots of different ways to use clocks really really powerful tool i think of vastly superior to the fourth edition style of skill challenges so if you want to take something from blades in the dark that you could drop in clocks are definitely one of them and that's probably something you could tie into factions you could have factions where your faction your faction is tied to a clock and that and that raises or lowers that could be one way to handle it it could be a good way for the players to understand what they're doing and how it's affecting so you might try that out but again i wouldn't worry too much about the mechanics of it i would think about what the faction actually means in the game ryan says what are your thoughts on having an 
adventure on, on having the adventure rewards be obviously targeted to your party, e.g. a wand for the wizard, but never a wand found if there is no wizard. On the one hand, I like giving out cool stuff they can use, but I also like the idea of the world not being so obviously a playground for the party. In particular, I'm running Curse of Strahd and I think there's no cleric or paladin to use the holy symbol. Is it better to change the, that restriction or give them a puzzle to solve, e.g. find a cleric? I like both. I And I recommend both in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master that... I like to look at the characters and think I like to give every character like a cornerstone item, like a like a, an item that really matters to them, something that they can really love that makes them very effective, that offers them cool stuff. So I definitely like the wish list. I and and I ask them what kind of what kind of I this is the one trick I do. I don't say what magic item do you want? I say what kind of magic items do you want for your character? And they say, Oh, I would really love to have some kind of cool rapier, or I would really love to have armor. Like I, you know, armor is what I do. So Getting the wish list is a, a good one. I think that that's a valuable way to handle it. And then I use random treasure on top of that. And I, I'll use random treasure generators a lot to drop in interesting items. And I'll I'll play with it. I'll run a few different runs on a random generator, see what kind of stuff comes up. And go, oh, that's a cool item. Let me drop that in there. And that way the characters are getting interesting things. Now, in the case of like Curse of Strahd, where it's like the sun sword, and if you don't like, or, or, or the, the, the holy symbol, right? First of all, you can switch out the holy symbol with the icon of, of the, the icon of Ravenloft, and I think the icon works better. So I, when I talked earlier in the video, I switched out the holy symbol for the icon. That way it's not tied to a cleric. I think the icon still works better with a cleric, but I think more people could just use it because it's just protection from it's just protection from good and evil otherwise. Now, in that case, I would go ahead and change it. Big if you have a big magic item that's really only something a particular class can use and you don't have those classes, I would change it to something that does fit the classes you have. The world does revolve around them. Like, we don't want them to feel like the world revolves around them, but it really does. The only people that matter are the people sitting at the table. Nobody else matters. So I think it's perfectly fine to change a magic item and make it something. And again, it's like, do you really think that Sting was put in the horde of the trolls, you know, so that Bilbo wouldn't find it? No, that was made for Bilbo. He wrote that for Bilbo. Come on. He built Sting for Bilbo, right? They came up with a thing, oh, it's an elvish blade and maybe it was a dagger. It doesn't look like a dagger. It's a sword for a small dude, right? It's clearly for Bilbo. So don't be afraid of putting in cool magic items, meaningful magic items that are tailored to the characters. I think it's definitely a good way to make the characters feel special. Ben M says, starting Chris Estrade with a fellow DM. We've both been DMing since the 80s and will co-DM the adventure. I.e. He'll run the beginning and the end. I'll run the middle. That's interesting. As an old school DM, he has fond memories of level draining undead from earlier editions. Wants to make the game fr frightening for both characters and players. I suggested using the exhaustion mechanics in the second 1D&D 1, one playtest and add those mechanics to some of the monsters. Aside from the four you have other suggestions to make creatures of Christmas tribe more challenging and scary for a bunch of veteran players or ways to make the horror theme more present at any rate related rambling by the way the, the suggested exhaustion rules are nasty and even save DCs are reduced for each level of exhaustion I wouldn't be surprised if the mechanic is used in a wider variety in the ways in the next iteration e.g. monster spells abilities that's one way to keep the power level down yeah so I do very much like the new exhaustion rules in 1D&D &D, and I've, I did bring them into my Curse of Strahd game yesterday so the, the way the new rules work and you could call them exhaustion you could also just make up something you could just say what it is that essentially when you're getting drained and it makes really sense for life draining specters wraiths vampires makes a lot of sense for them that when you're drained you take a minus one to all your d20 check and the dcs of your spells would go down by one and 
and it stacks. It can get, it can get worse. I was thinking about the fact I was listening to Sean and Teos talk about this. And I was thinking about the fact that it goes to 10. That's crazy. Why isn't it five? Like you should die at five. You shouldn't die 10 levels of exhaustion before you die. Why not five levels of exhaustion? Then you die. Like five is still pretty high. Minus five to everything. Minus 10 is crazy. So yeah, that's something I thought about, but nobody's asking. And I already, I already filled out my survey and I can't say it, but I would you know, maybe say, it. but boy, that works really well for vampires. The one thing I would add is that the different kind of monster could have different ways that you have to get rid of it. So like a specter might be so low level or a shadow, for example, could be low enough that if you just have a good night's rest, it goes away. A wraith, on the other hand, might require a lesser restoration to get that back. So maybe a short rest or a long rest doesn't do it. Maybe you actually need a lesser restoration to get rid of it. And a vampire, a really powerful undead, maybe that takes a greater restoration. Because the idea is like you've been drained. Like you can't just get it back. And a greater restoration is required. That gets into that old school because I think that was the way it was back in the first and second edition of D&D. When you were life drained, it took magical spells to get it back. You couldn't just rest and get it back it was permanent unless you had a lesser greater restoration so i would tie those drains i think the idea of like losing your hit points is really good the idea of taking a minus one to all of your d20 checks and a minus to your 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 dcs of any of your dc abilities i think that's really good and then I would also tie it to the difficulty of getting rid of it, that lesser, restor less, lesser or greater restorations are required in order to get rid of it. Kathy says, I'm interested in getting started with Numenera. Would you recommend I get the starter set or jump in and with both feet and get Discovery, Destiny, and the player's guide? I would probably get Discovery. Discovery gives you four adventures. It gives you everything you need to understand the game it gives you all the character options that you need you can get the pdf for like 20 bucks i would i would definitely get started with that that said there are some free numenera previews so if you want to do it without paying for anything there are some previews of numenera that you can get so take a look in the show notes below and you'll definitely be able to get some free uh, like a free quick play kind of thing but if i was paying money i'd start with discovery I think Discovery is really, really good. It's got everything in it. It's a fantastic book. It's well-refined. I love it. So, so I would definitely check that out. Boris says, I know you're a huge proponent of the third-party material for 5e and that Cobalt Press is one of your favorite publishers. All true. You have recently begun Empire of the Ghouls. Man, you're tracking me. You've recently begun Empire of the Ghouls campaign, which I successfully ran a couple years ago and loved. That's great to hear. So I'm wondering if you can give your thoughts on the vast and varied world of Midgard and how it differs, for better or worse, from Faerun, which is the published setting most 5e players know and use. Thank you for your time and all that you do. Yeah. So Midgard, I love Midgard. And I the Midgard World Book, which is linked in the show notes below, is one of the best campaign source books I've ever seen. Mostly in just how much depth it's got. You really don't need to have a lot of Midgard. You know, Cobalt Press puts out lots of Midgard books, uh, lots of different setting books. You really don't need a lot of them. That Midgard World Book has so much stuff in it. You could run campaigns for your whole life in it. A couple of big changes that are, are different from Forgotten Realms is that they really tried to capture a lot of different kinds of fantasy in Midgard and they're based on regions and for better or worse and I'm 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 not sure that I'm crazy about it they tried to tie a lot of these different types of fantasy to world real world regions so if you look at Midgard it actually looks kind of like Europe and different parts of Midgard are sort of tied loosely to the cultures of the different parts of like Europe and Africa and you know, A, you can get into a lot of dangerous things there. It's very easy to fall into stereotypes. It's very easy to create real world 
analogs that are not that are not great. So I, I try not to do that too much. But it's like, oh, the north is like all the Viking folks and south is like African. And, you know, the west is sort of like Europe, except the western wastes where they destroyed all of France. So there's there's definitely like that's something to worry about. Also, the the Midgard book, the Midgard world book was written a few years ago. And there's certain sensibilities to role playing games today that are not in there. So, for example, slavery, one of the, the dwarves, the dwarves of the cantons have slaves. They they go out and capture slaves and then bring them back and then work them in their minds. And then on occasion, they'll have a big party and let some of them free. That's really I'm not. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. So I'm like, well, not in my version of Midgard. In my version of Midgard, the dwarves, because it's not one where it's like only the evil dwarves are doing. It's like, no, there are dwarves that you might deal with as characters that are not considered evil, that are enslaving other races to bring them in. Or not necessarily races, but certainly enslaving other people to bring them in. That's not, I, I don't think that's great. So that's something where I've washed that out. And I'm like, nope, we're, 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 the dwarves do not engage in that. The dwarves have all other creepy things they do in my version of Empire of the Ghouls and all that, but not, not on that one. The, the, the good is just how vast and wide and varied it is, that it has so many really cool places. The big features, again, the, the beginning of the Midgard, we can, we can take a look at it. So the Midgard World Book, again, pick it up it's really really good the midgard world book right in the beginning does the thing that i very much like all campaign books to do which is talk about what makes the world different than everything else and so i'm not going to read through all of it but there are like the seven secrets of midgard are right in here one the world is flat so in that case it's not like earth at all no one knows what's on the edges, but it's at, it's flat. There are elemental dragon lords. The first gods were dragons, elemental dragons that sort of forged everything else. The world is filled with the gods that dabble in plots. So the gods are around. The gods have masks that they wear. So one god might appear to be a god, but it's actually another god. There are hidden races. So it's got your humans, elves, dwarves, and everything else. But then there's these other races that are around. Ley lines and shadow roads. There's all these like lines of power, these ley lines that exist through everything that were used by the elves to kind of move from place to place. Now have become these shadow roads that you can travel. Shifting borders and falling kingdoms. Midgard is a world that is continually moving. King Lucan, the vampire lord of Morgan Dorn, has risen in power lots of different lots of different stuff going on there so there's you know really really good stuff in the beginning of the book kind of really hits on like what the main differences are i have been spending more and more time reading this it's a big book 466 page book so there's a lot going on in this book i've spent a lot more time reading the book and understanding it looking into the gods and what's been going on there and bringing that both into my scarlet citadel and my empire of the ghouls game and that has been that has been working really well if you're looking for a new campaign world i would definitely check it out i think it is really really fantastic just packed with adventure ideas packed with ancient history really really good stuff my only the only criticisms i have are the ones i've already given but also like it's a lot of material so lazy it is not like you definitely want to dive in and spend but it's really enjoyable to kind of read and my players are really digging it they love this new world they love learning about this new world they love the style they love what they see they love learning it's really like more so than just playing in the forgotten realms over and over again they are enjoying playing in another sort of you know, one of the players referred to as like a good traditional D&D setting that I don't know. And I think that that I think that that really fits. So, yeah, I, I, I really dig it. And I would definitely check it out. Ape in a Cape says I've been running my game of Rime of the Frostmaiden for a few sessions now and I have a party of five. I've been able to touch on every PC backstory and secret at least once so far. But now that we're getting further into the plot, I'm finding it more and more difficult to juggle every PC story. I want to give every player the opportunity to shine and try to include a few things for one to two PCs when I'm working on my session prep. Sometimes I'm able to get these tailored made secrets and clues sometimes i'm not do you have any tips on how to handle backstories of a large party without having anyone left out when the party shenanigans move them in a direction where the story might not come into play 
I think you have to be okay with that. There are, there, there are times where the direction that a game goes is just away from what the arc of that character was. And hopefully the player can find a new arc to grab onto. In our evolving world, when we have like five, six players and we have a DM and we're all doing different things, we don't know where it's going to go, which means the character arcs don't really work perfectly well. And sometimes a new arc will come up. And I think this is what's interesting about some of these stories that we love, like, like Game of Thrones, where, oh, what was Eddard Stark's arc? Not his arc ended kind of quickly. Right. What are the arcs? A lot of them. we get we get excited when the arcs don't necessarily take the path. If somebody had like a big arc in their life and then they're killed, which can happen in a D&D game. Well, that's a different kind of arc. So one thing is, you know, I'll say this a lot, like forgive yourself. You don't have to tie everything together. Try to make it clear to your players that you're not always going to be able to bring every character arc in there. And hopefully they're OK with that. And then if you have the opportunity you take it, if you don't and the story moved on in a different direction, they have to be kind of aware. Yeah, I know I was going to go, you know, I'm a prince of this land over there, but now we're in a big cave. Like it's not going to come up in this big cave. And hopefully they're okay with that too. Hopefully they're okay with it. And hopefully they can find new arcs as well. Then of course, at the end of a campaign, you always have the one year later where they can make any arc they want. And it's way easier on the DM to let the player grab onto the, grab onto the story and run with it once the camp, general theme of the campaign is over. So you could try that out. Could you do something like that in the middle of a campaign? If you had an opportunity for some downtime and say, you guys did this whole mission and now you're back at your hometown and especially in like Rhyme of the Frost Man, you say, we're going to jump forward a month. So you've, you've all had a month to do things. What have you done with your characters? And maybe the characters have split up and done some things and now they're coming back again. That might be a chance for them to kind of take their arc and, and run with it a little bit and then come back to the regular adventure. But in general, I would say don't don't beat yourself up about not bringing in every single hook that occurs because sometimes they just don't Miguel s says i have been running tyranny of dragons campaign we are now at the well of dragons and i'm trying to make the journey through the well of dragons interesting a major villain npc fight encounter should happen before the fight with tiamat i want this last chapter to be hard but i want the party to showcase their 15th level status how do i get the party fresh from the battle with tiamat after the encounters in the well how do i get the party fresh to the battle with tiamat after the encounters in the well of dragons an eight hour long rest where they where there is a battle outside enemies know the party isn't there is too much there doesn't make too much sense for me right now so you have the main villain what's his name Sever, severin Sever, i think it's, it's something like severin you have a main villain that could be there you could have lots of cults of the dragons that are in the temple when i ran the temple i didn't have them wander around the temple very much they went into the they had done a bunch of stuff outside during the war that was occurring outside and then they went inside and i think they had like two or three encounters and then fought tiamat i wouldn't worry about making sure they're totally fresh to fight Tiamat. You could build up, you could have waves of combats before Tiamat arrives, because at 15th level, they got a lot of resources. So doing waves of battles, you know, other demons that are coming out of the pit first, or other high-level cultists that are attacking before they before Tiamat fully arises. And that way, when Tiamat shows up, it's sort of this three-stage fight. And that's where you can really do one of these full session battles, where the whole battle takes an entire session i don't you know i think that that can be that can be cool and doing waves of combats are ways to let the players show off that 15th level status use things like lightning rods what are types of monsters that the characters are really built to fight does is the cleric just waiting for piles of undead give them piles of undead 
Has, is the fighter just really hoping to fight one big guy and take it down? Give him a big guy to fight down. Do they use banish all the time? Give him lots of big creatures to banish that really help change the battlefield. Give them opportunity to show off these abilities so that they can they can watch the character shine. So look at each character and say, what kind of fight does this character enjoy? And how can I throw that into this big final battle? How can I show that? As far as making them fresh, you can do like the healing font is always a good one that there's, a, a, you know, they learn about a secret area or maybe one of the characters is blessed and given this thing that lets everybody quickly restore to their to their full, maybe a sacrifice is made, a magic item that's shattered, but the magic of the magic item gives everybody the equivalent of a full rest. There are a lot of different like tricks for giving people the equivalent of a full rest without having to take one. A single potion that they all drink and share that gives them this. So there, there are options there for how to get your characters a rest, even if they're like in the middle of a big sequence of fights. I hope that I hope that helps. And, and congratulations on getting that far in Tyranny of Dragons. It's a big deal. Chappie says, many of my players enjoy open world video games because they can find side quests and little random things just by wandering about. D&D doesn't seem to mimic the true sense of discovery that you get by just wandering in an open world like Red Dead or Skyrim, etc. How would you go about capturing that sense of discovering in a TTRPG? So I think your premise is flawed because D&D definitely can offer that and many cases has and the original versions of DD definitely had that had that happen you if you're running your campaign that's a more linear campaign where there's one central story and you're going off and you're doing that one thing that's certainly one way to go but you can definitely put side quests all over the place and you could run entire campaigns if you think about west marches style campaigns i would definitely take a look if you haven't heard about them what west marches style campaigns i'll put a link in the show notes below but that idea is the players drive where they go the, the dm doesn't even have a story in mind the players drive where they go yeah the other one is check out the articles about hex crawls alexander uh, Justin Alexander and the Alexandrian has tons of articles about hex crawls and lots of ways hexes are designed is that each hex has kind of an interesting thing of its own, like interesting location that you might explore and you can build that out in all directions. So you can absolutely run games that are way bigger and have way more flexibility than Skyrim or Red Dead have because those still had to have programmers write all that stuff. What's one, you know, Elden Ring. Elden Ring has side quests all over the place. But you can definitely build your campaign that way. Even if you have a linear campaign. In my Empire of the Ghouls game, I have a linear campaign. But on occasion, a, a quest, an NPC will say, we can take that path and we can get straight to the, 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 the Black Fortress. But we can also go through the zombie wood because there's a necromancer in there I have been dying to get rid of. And the players get to decide, ooh, do we want to go after the necromancer or are we just going to skip the necromancer and go to where we were planning to go? And then they said, oh, we're in my next game. Oh, yeah, we're going for the necromancer. So you can drop those side quests and you can drop in a whole bunch of them with the recognition that they're only going to take some of them and let them know, like, the expectation is you're not going to take all of these. If you want to see a model of this that I think works really, really well, take a look at Dragon of Ice Spire Peak in the D&D Essentials kit because it definitely has quests where you can only take two before the third one disappears. So there's definitely like options that you can go without it being a linear game. So I definitely think the idea that D&D doesn't have as much of an open world to it as, as these other games, is, you know, it's definitely not true because it's as open as you want it to be and it's all what you design. Mark J says, I find myself generating adventures with features I don't have a solution for because they seem cool at the time and i hope i can come up with something later for example i created an npc who accidentally trapped his consciousness inside a gem in front of him on his desk his body is now catatonic i'd like to provide a chance of rescuing him rejoining his soul with his body and finding it hard to come up with a plausible solution another example might be sending the party to the domain of dread but i haven't yet figured out how they might return should i always have a solution in mind when i present situations like this to the players or can i just hope that i concoct something plausible later the question is do you have trouble 
coming up with those concoctions later. If you are, if you if you're finding it tricky that like they the players aren't really come up with ideas, you don't really have ideas and you're getting stuck, then maybe prepping some ideas works. I think that the idea of like thinking up two or three possible ways that it could be solved is not bad. That if you only come up with one, if you only think of like, there's only really one way they're going to get back from this, that's probably too linear. And you're probably going to end up steering them towards that one. But if you say, well, here are two different ways they could do it, that they could solve whatever this problem is, figuring out the gemstone or leaving a domain of dread. If, you, if you're thinking about that, then if you, if you can come up with two, you're probably in a pretty good spot. Three would be even better. And that's really, but other times it's totally fine to put a problem in place and not have any and then see where it goes. If you're pretty good about thinking on your feet and playing a lot of yes and with the players who are trying ideas and saying, oh, that sounds like it could be a reasonable way to do it because they're going to come up with one. So as long as you stay open to the ones the players come up with, then I think you'll, you'll find a pretty good spot. Andrea, the GM, says, I usually run modules, but sometimes I need to come up with glue dungeons and adventures. I often struggle when estimating how many combat encounters I should sandwich between two long rests, assuming reasonable short rests. Xanathar suggests six to eight medium to hard encounters. Is that reasonable? Do you have a rule of thumb, such as the adventuring day may be deadly if? Yes, I do have a rule of thumb. And that rule of thumb is don't worry about how many encounters per day. It doesn't matter. How many encounters make, how many, how many rests and how often they rest, and how many encounters they face, and how many they don't. I like to let the story determine that. I, I very rarely, I don't think I ever really think of how many encounters they're going to face before a rest. Instead, and I haven't for eight years that I've been playing 5th edition, instead, I only worry about it when it gets to be a problem. If the player, and, and almost always in the sense of they haven't had a rest and they really need one, but they're not in a great place to get a rest. That, that That is the only time I really worry about it. But generally, I don't mind if the players are fully rested when they hit encounters. That's fine. If they want to use a tiny hut in order to rest in the middle of a dungeon and it's reasonable to do so and there's no enemies that you think are going to harass them while they're there, then I let them do it. So I let the story determine where there's rest. I never count up how many encounters they have. I never say they should have six to eight medium to hard encounters per, per day. I never worry about any of that. I, I do keep the deadly encounter benchmark, but remember the deadly encounter benchmark is only there to help me just determine like, am I going to accidentally kill them? Do I know what I'm getting into? It's not even a determination of making sure that a battle is hard. Other DMs I know are very worried about this and I, I see it all the time. I see it on Reddit. I see it on other, other places where people talk about it. I talk about it with friends of mine who run much more procedural, stepped, planned games where they know what an encounter is going to be they they know they want to have a certain difficulty they know how many they're going to have before arrest they know where the rest is going to come up that to me for, for my style of game is way too prescriptive and i want to just let the world run how the world runs and so so you know don't so i mean i'm not saying you don't do it if you want to do it however you want you want to do it and if you think the rules in xanathars work fine for you then they work fine for you i don't think my friends are wrong for how they do it but I know that the style that I like, and it certainly it fits a lazy style, is what makes sense in the world. And that, that one guideline, what makes sense in the world, can be used all over the game. It can be used with how NPCs react. It can be used with which monsters make sense for the situation that the characters are going into. It makes sense for how often they should rest. It makes sense so many different places in this game. The mechanics, of, like subsystems that we would create can be ripped out and replaced with, well, what makes sense? Factions. How should the factions react to the characters? Do we need a flow chart with a bunch of Excel cells with different numbers and different gauges that are going back and forth? Or can you say, what makes sense? Given what's happened, 
what makes sense for the reaction of this faction? What have the players been doing? What have the characters been doing? What have the monsters been doing while this has been going on? And what makes sense? So keeping our head around that single question, what makes sense given the current story? What makes sense given what has occurred? What makes sense for the situation is a really powerful rule of thumb that keeps you grounded on what the story is of the game, right? So... So that is my rule of thumb. And, and certainly when it gets into the nitpicky nature of how many medium to hard, first of all, I don't think you can determine what a medium and hard encounter are going to be ahead of time. I think you can get a general idea. I can generally feel for what a hard encounter is and I can make a hard encounter because I got my dials. But, you know, I think that, I think that it's hard for you to figure out what's going to be easy, what's going to be medium and hard. And then there's the question of like, well, what if they bypass it by talking their way through it? Are you not going to allow that? Do you now add another encounter later because you want to have one? That, that's not crazy so i go with what makes sense given the situation in the story and then i think about the beats have things been too easy maybe i'll make something maybe something comes in that's a little harder have things been really hard maybe something comes in that's a little easier so i definitely worry those are the two variables that i really pay attention to what makes sense given the world first and then second what makes sense what what would be fun for the pace of the current game those i think are better rules of thumb than how many encounters should you run in a regular day Baptiste says, I ran the session one of Ruins of the Grunderroot. Awesome. Thank you. The group is overjoyed to lay claim to Starsong Tower. Do you have any advice on how to handle the renovation and expansion of their headquarters to make it interesting and really their own? Patrons of Sly Flourish have access to a PDF called Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. Volume 2 has a bunch of different stuff that did not make its way into the Lazy DM's Companion. Volume 1 is basically all the stuff that was in the Lazy DM's Companion. And one of the things I have in Volume 2 is a home bases section, page 7. Again, patrons of Sly Flourish can get access to this. And here is the home bases one. This is, again, the lazy guide. What are some things that the characters might want to buy that they can add to it? And I have sort of traditional upgrades, the non-magical stuff, the non-fantastic stuff that you'd want to add, and the gold piece value. Do you want to have heating, suite furnishings, parlor furnishings, a study, a forge, kitchen, spa? And they go up in value from 200 gold pieces all the way up to 10,000 for smugglers tunnels because you're burrowing tunnels on it. That's expensive. Wine cellars, fancy wine cellars, museums. You know, the ways to spend money, ways to spend all that gold then i have magical upgrades what are things that you want to add to your base that cost a lot of money animated paintings glyphs of warding elemental furnaces guards and wards magical kitchens crystal balls scrying mirrors healing vessels planier gateways resurrection vaults and they go all the way up to two hundred thousand gold for some of these things so and again it would probably take time to build these so this is like a one-page guide it's in home bases uncovered secrets volume two if you are a patron of sly flourish you can get direct access to it and there are other books too that offer that offer things that you can add but it could really help to sit down you can pull up the player's handbook you can look at the stuff it offers think about what you know, list out some of the fantastic features you think the characters might want apply prices to them and times how long it would take to get them and then they can build up their base with stuff like that but building a menu for them is a fine way to go this is a menu a menu that i would that i would probably start joe b says i was designing a mission for my group and took inspiration from a one shot as i planned i struggled to come up with the secrets and clues most of my planning was what are the battles monsters and maps and what are some of the rooms of this dungeon what kind of secrets and clues would you create for a combat heavy session that is basically a side quest from a main plot i say it's a side quest because most of the normal plot related or even char character secrets and clues don't seem to be relevant at the time so not every secret needs to be relevant to them right now but they can still learn things about themselves 
I have an article called Types of Secrets. These are the types of secrets. If you're having trouble thinking up what some secrets includes, there are a few different ones to think about. And I like this list. Char- I like it. I wrote it. Character secrets, location secrets, historical secrets, NPC or villain secrets, plot revealing secrets, and adventure hooks. I think you can drop in a lot of these kinds of things. But if you're in a dungeon and it's sort of a side quest, there's still a story going on. Why is this dungeon here? What did it used to be? Are there layers of groups that used to that used to reside here. Scarlet Citadel is a great big dungeon, but it's got layers of history that they can discover while they're scraping through the paint on the walls. I always love the, like, there's a fresco, but when you pull that fresco down, there's another one underneath that teaches you something else. But you can learn about the campaign world. You can learn about the gods. You can learn about different factions that used to rule in here. History of the world overall, but also history of the specific location. You can learn about villains that used to be here that might not be here anymore. Ghosts, who are the, when you face undead, who are those undead? What kind of armor are they wearing? What sort of lives did they have when they they were doing that thing. So there's lots of different ways to think about secrets. And it's mostly about what is interesting in this situation. What is a slice, a tiny little interesting and relevant thing that you can learn. Remember where secrets and clues came from. They, they came from that idea that I, the first time that I thought about this idea was when I was playing the From Software game, Bloodborne. And in Bloodborne, every item you picked up had a little history about that item. And From Software has done this in all the Dark Souls games, the Demon Souls games, Elden Ring. And every item you pick up has a piece of the story. And sometimes that story is vast. But each one you're learning from one line that you pick up from one thing. You want to learn the whole history of Rahadin? You, you learn it from each piece of armor that you pick up from him, each weapon, each group. You want to learn about the, the, the knight what was it, the, the night of the bloodletting, the night that the, all the assassins went after the gods, you learn about it by picking up all these little pieces about it. So th- think about it that way. There's a story to tell here. And if you don't have one, make one. You can look at this lair and say, what, what are some stories that I can put on this place? What's an interesting piece of lore that I can put on this place? Hit some random generators up, come up with some history and build a story that the characters can learn while they're exploring. It's really a fun thing to do, even if it's just a dungeon crawl. Learning about that dungeon, learning who used to be there, meeting the ghost, you know, learning about like a, a woman that was killed and how she's her vengeance was there and then meeting her at the end as a ghost it could be really really fun so that definitely the idea of like exploration is a reward and you can drop exploration in any kind of D game really including dungeon crawls so joe i hope that answers your question we have covered all of the questions for october of 2022 and with that we are going to end the lazy DD talk show i want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today if you enjoyed this show you can help me out by subscribing to the sly flourish newsletter where you get a weekly DD related article sent directly to your inbox every week you get the free adventure generator pdf you can also support me directly on patreon you can get access to uncovered secrets volume 2 but also a whole plethora of other things exclusive adventures exclude the city of arches source book the monthly q a for november you get access to all different kinds of things and you can pick up my books return to the lazy dungeon master the lazy names workbook and the lazy names companion all at the sly flourish bookstore the links for that are all in the show notes below thank you very much have a great day and get out there and play some DD.